Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. Abdullah Ali. You're most welcome, sir. And it's always good to be here with you, Paul. Once again, it's uh, really a pleasure and thank you for bringing me on. Well, absolute pleasure for me too. Uh, Dr. Ali is, for those who don't know, a professor of Islamic law and the prophetic tradition at the famous Zaytuna College in California. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Ali about the important concept of bidder in Islam. What is it and is it always to be avoided? Can you say a few words about this, sir? Yes, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The term bid'ah often translates as heresy or innovation. Um, The Prophet Muhammad in um, multiple statements and perhaps one of the most famous statements related to a speech that he had given publicly to the companions and during that speech uh, said that the companions, they cried uh, because of his words because they felt that he was offering a farewell um, 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 address right at that moment. And, and, and towards the end of that speech, he mentioned uh, that those of, you, those of you who happen to live after my passing, uh, you're gonna see many, uh, a great, a lot of disagreement among the people. And when you see that, then you should cling to my sunnah and the sunnah, I mean, in the tradition or legacy of my rightly guided successors, bite down upon them uh, with your molars, and then beware of things that are new, because every new thing is a bid'ah. Every new thing or novel thing is a bid'ah. And in one narration, every bid'ah is misguidance. You know, so the word bid'ah often is utilized, it is utilized to mean um, something which is introduced into the religion, or it can be also, depending on your, the scholar, something introduced into culture, uh, which may uh, understood to have a detrimental effect uh, on humanity. Uh, now, um, the Quran is very clear uh, about it being or representing the final or the last dispensation sent to humanity. Uh, so in Surah Al-Ma'idah, and one famous verse, it mentions, uh, Today I perfected for you your religion. I have uh, completed my favor upon you, and I have chosen Islam for you as a way of life or as religion. Uh, So this particular verse uh, is considered to be be one of the last of verses to be revealed in the Quran. And what is understood from it is uh, one, first and foremost, that God had sent multiple uh, law codes or revealed law codes to humanity. And Mm -hmm. not every law code, as we know, was the same. Uh, there are certain alterations, certain things that are different about uh, the way perhaps maybe people fasted or they worshipped. Uh, sometimes certain types of actions were lawful to do, which we considered to be sinful later on and vice versa. And then when the Prophet Muhammad came, being the last of the messengers sent to humanity, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran revealed to him the verse declaring that this was the final dispensation, that God has perfected his favor and his blessing upon humanity by giving them this final revealed law code, which we often refer to as the the Sharia. Um, When this was revealed and the Prophet had communicated this information to his companions, Umar ibn Khattab, may Allah be pleased with him, it said, a narration says he began to cry when he heard it. Uh, And when the Prophet saw him crying, he said to Umar, why are you crying? Uh, Umar's response was that, uh, O Messenger of Allah, Prior to this, we were in increase. Everything we were doing, uh, where it was an increase being uh, uh, given to all of our works. Now, if this is now completed, it means that there's only decrease from this point on, right? Mm-hmm. Only, so once something's perfected, you can yeah. only take away from it yeah. from that time moving forward. Um, uh, one, one verse it says, it caused the prophet to say, قُلْ مَا كُنْتُ بِدْعًا مِنَ الرُّسُلِ that uh, say to them, I am not a new messenger. I'm not a bid'ah or bid'an min al-rusul. In other words, I've not brought you any new information. And, what, and by that, it means that the creed has not changed, that what God taught in terms of creed has always been consistent. God is one. 
Uh, God is creator of all. He doesn't have his son. doesn't have, of course, himself. He's not the, uh, it does not begin nor it's not begotten. That angels exist. The heaven, heaven exists. Hell exists, etc. Right. So these are, these beliefs have been communicated by every single messenger has been sent to humanity. What has changed has been the law. What has changed has been um, um, some aspects of the law over time. And so this particular verse uh, in Surah Samaidah and then the other and the different sort of highlights the, the fact that that bid'ah itself or um, uh, that Islam itself is a perfect religion and no one has the right to actually add anything to it, right? So, uh, then of course, there's more that I can say, but uh, this, I guess, should hopefully address that uh, initial question. Mm, okay. Well, that, that, that's very helpful uh, indeed. Um, I, I'm just looking at uh, this book uh, earlier on by Al-Ghazali, Kitab Al-Ilm, the Book of Knowledge in English. is well, just one volume of, uh, I don't know, 20 or so volumes of this extraordinary work, The Revival of the religious uh, sciences. Right. And um, I, I looked up uh, just a, a brief section here where Al-Ghazali talks about Bidda in his day. Now this is in the 12th century of the common era. He died in 1111 uh, mm -hmm. of the common era. Uh, so this is a long, long time ago. But he, he says, uh, some of the reasons, a uh, couple of paragraphs in this, he talks about the Bidda in his day um, and, and explains his view on it. He says, the majority of what are considered worthy deeds in these times, in the 12th century, uh, were looked upon as reprehensible in the times of their companions. For example, among the foremost worthy deeds of our times is the decoration and embellishment of mosques and spending enormous sums on the intricate details worked into their construction, then covering their floors with fine carpets. So these are the innovations. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Whereas formerly, spreading reed mats in the mosque was considered an innovation. Just spreading reed mats on the floor of the mosque was considered an innovation. And then he says the earliest generations rarely placed anything between themselves and the earth. So it was that, so, that was so different. Likewise, he continues, among the most uh, outstanding scholarly pursuits of our times, these are Muslim scholars in his times, the outstanding scholarly pursuits, he says, is immersion in the intricacies of dialectics and disputation. In other words, having debates, having debates, um, imagining that therein lies the greatest means of gaining proximity to God, whereas in fact it is among the reprehensible pursuits, he says. Mm -hmm. another, another novel practice of our time, again, this is the 12th century, 800 years ago, is, the chanting, uh, is chanting the Quran and the call to prayer in a melodious fashion. It says embellished, it's ornamented, it's great beauty and, and so on. This uh, is a novel practice, he says. Another novel practice, um, and this is interesting, is over-concern with neatness and anxiety over one's ritual purity, envisaging far-fetched scenarios about the ritual purity of one's clothing, 
while showing few scruples whether one's food is lawful mm. and unlawful. Right. Mm -hmm. and such examples go on and on and on. It says yeah. here, three goes on in, in the text. Yeah. Uh, page uh, 240 of Al-Ghazali's Kitab al-Ilm. Uh, is a wonderful uh, book. And there's an yes. introduction by someone called Hamza Yusuf Has Hamza, <laughs> who I think is a colleague of yours. You need to look that guy up, yeah, right? do a Google search. <laughs> yeah, so I do recommend a fascinating uh, Yes, it is, book. it's totally. Yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, I go to, I will, but no, I will say what it is, because it's not a secret. I go to Regent's Park Mosque here in London, London Central Mosque, as it calls itself. A very beautiful mosque with very nice carpets and mm -hmm. everything else. All the things that Al-Ghazali says are innovations, bidder. I mean, are we to conclude then that having nice carpets is bitter and thus reprehensible and thus we shouldn't have them? I mean, the implication is that these are regrettable and maybe perhaps we should move away from them. I mean, should we draw that conclusion in the 21st century? Well, yeah, that's it's a really interesting question. And this is one of those, um, um, those matters that has really been a strong source of debate, you know, and great controversy over properly defining or at least... Um, determining what particular aspects of our lives um, qualify as what you call a bidah, right? Uh, but then uh, I would say even a more interesting question perhaps is the question of whether or not there's a such thing as a good bidah, right? Wow. right? And this has been debated in where, for instance, you have um, the majority of Muslims, you know, who are at the viewpoint, uh, and, and of course by Muslims, I'm talking about represented in their scholars, uh, those actually learn it, the learned community, the majority of Muslim scholars of the view that bid'ah itself, it divides into the five fundamental categories of Islamic law. You know, say, right. well, it, it can be, for instance, the compulsory, it can be disliked, it can be recommended, it can be um, 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 uh, forbidden, and then also can be just simply neutral, right? There, there are certain things that are simply neutral. Uh, but then you also have scholars who would say, uh, that um, that bid'ah only applies to matters of worship, and it has nothing to do with culture. So, for instance, some of those things that Imam Ghazali lists uh, with respect to okay, decorating the mosque, or you know, being you can concern with your clothing and how neat you are, those type of things, that you can say okay, these are cultural matters, matters of culture. Yeah. And so, someone was going to respond, okay, well, there's a there's a hadith where the prophet he said that anyone who has a mustard, mustard seed amount of pride or vanity in one's heart, then that person would not enter paradise. And then a companion heard that and said, well, uh, old messenger of Allah, but we like to wear nice clothes and nice shoes. You know? yeah. And then the prophet responded, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking about that, but rather um, pride or vanity in this situation is, uh, is rejection of truth and and belittling people, looking down yeah. upon people, right? Yeah. You know, so someone will respond with that, you know, but of course, and then there will also be the response or refutation, the retort of that as well, you know, because scholars differ about one, does if they're assessing is good bid'ah, uh, and then two, do does bid'ah apply only to worship or does it apply to everything, right? And what's interesting, if you go back, look into sources, uh, you find scholars say that the very first bid'ah that ever occurred was the bid'ah of the Khawarij, uh, the mm -hmm. Khadij, I should know. Their bid'ah was declaring sinful, sinful Muslims to be uh, um, kufar or non-Muslims yeah, yeah. uh, and then making their blood lawful because of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you find that being the main, um, I guess you said, mainstream understanding is that that's the first bid'ah. So this is a bid'ah in and creed, right? And as well as a heresy itself, right? In that sense. Uh, but then there's another hadith, you know, which doesn't have very strong support for it, you know, but Ghazali mentions it and other scholars uh, among the Sufi tradition, they mention this hadith and they say that the very first bid'ah that occurred in Islam, and it's, it's attributed to Umm al-Mu'minin Aisha, mother of the faithful Aisha, the prophet's wife, saying that the very first was satiation, you know, the word the people ate, 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 people would eat their full, right? Satiety, it was satiation, right? You know, so, uh, but that particular hadith doesn't have a, uh, a, a chain of narration, as far as I, 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 I'm aware of, right? right? But it does, it is mentioned in multiple books, you know, so you have, so it's either between declaring uh, a Muslim to be uh, a non Muslim because of a sin, 
Yeah, or because we eat too much food, right? We overeat, right? And we uh, we eat our full. Um, and of course, we can see the value in both of those opinions. And you can see the uh, the wisdom and people at least believing such things and how it may affect our actions, right? So um, there's a statement also from Sahaba like Abu Darda, uh, Anas bin Malik, who actually, after the death of the majority of the companions, and they were living in this new generation of Muslims, the second generation. These are companions still alive who live beyond uh, the uh, the early period. Um, um, there's one, a famous statement from both of them saying that if the prophet had been alive today, uh, then he would not recognize anything that, that any of you are doing, right? Other than the Salah itself. Wow. Other, he wouldn't recognize anything, right? So it's really, it's like, you know, uh, uh, because because Muslim scholars um, developed a theory of what we call maslaha, sort of the theory of, 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 of benefit and public interest, uh, and expanded that understanding that I think that this, this itself contributes much more to a lot of the innovation that has occurred and we see it uh, around this and um, I don't really know completely know what to do about it. You know, all of us are guilty of some type of bid'ah in that sense, or not. Um, uh, and uh, but uh, public interest, religious interest, uh, they do does seem to have some level of validity. Uh, but I do think it's always honest to properly convey that this is not a matter which has been settled right in our tradition. Um, mm. And one side saying that uh, there is a such thing as a good bid'ah. The other side, scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, and uh, Imam al-Shatibi saying that uh, there is no such thing as a good bid'ah because the hadith of the Prophet said, Kulla dalala, that every bid'ah is a misguidance. Mm -hmm. uh, so when he declares that, this is general. This is universal statement, right? So anything new, but in what regard? New with respect to religion or new with respect to culture? And other things like that, because um, I mean, uh, in today's world, innovation is the norm. I mean, particularly in technology, for example, iPhones and so on. Uh, right. the, the medium we're using now is an innovation. Um, right. right. Transportation, you know, getting on an aeroplane or right. uh, trains or cars, they're, they're innovation. But I assume that they're, they're kind of Sharia neutral. That they they don't impact on the Dean in any obvious way. I mean, here's me saying this, but that perhaps might yeah. be an yeah. example. Um, <laughs> Right, right. Unless unless there's approximate uh, harm, which can be, you know, sort of seen like, you know, directly when someone invents something new, the mm. default usually is that, okay, this is fine. This is a neutral uh, uh, device, right? You know, so, but right. once we discover, okay, that, it, you know, remotely that these particular, th these are, there are multiple harms that come from these such, such things, then you will find scholars inclining towards prohibiting those type of actions, right? Uh, so, um, so most most scholars who are re re reasonable, you know, and I think the most scholars are reasonable, have been reasonable throughout Islamic history, including those who say there's no no such thing as a good bid'ah, would exclude sort of like technologies and things like that from the purview uh, of that particular condemnation. Uh, so, um, and, and also is known because it's known from the Sunnah of the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi that he was never given a choice between two things, except that he chose the easier of the two. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and let, as long as it was not prohibited, as long yeah. as it was not unlawful, right? Yeah. Right? That he chose the easier of the two of them, right? So you can, uh, that, that sounds more like in the area the arena of technology. Yeah. So if you either walk or take a camel, right? You know, is right? You understand? I think the prophet would have taken the camel, right? As he did so many times, or he rode a mule or he rode a donkey, right? As opposed to walking somewhere which is a far distance, right? Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> no, I'd say can can we um just try a couple of examples of really controversial alleged bidders? Many people say they are bidders, many people say they're not bidders. Uh well one of them would be um instrumental music. Mm. Okay. Um, now, I, I know this is a complicated subject. I'm, I'm not looking for a fatwa from you, unless you want to give one. But, um, you know, um, 
you know, apart from what's called the duff, the, the drum-like instrument, um, mm. which was apparently used in the Prophet's time and, and was acceptable, uh, many people would say, you know, it, instrumental music like, you know, stringed instruments, flutes, right. um, and let alone modern contraptions are all are condemned um, because of various hadith. Whereas other people would say you know, Al-Ghazali, I think, um, ha had a, a different view. I'm not quite clear what it was, but it mm -hmm. seems to be dissenting yeah. from that. Um, I mean, it, it, am I right to say there's no consensus, firstly, there's no consensus in the ulama about this. So we can't just say, well, Islam teaches X. Right. But if that is the case, is there nonetheless a, um, how can I put it, a, a, a consensus in a majoritarian position, a, part, yeah. a minority position and a majority yeah. position? Uh, come on, say that. Yeah. Well, I would say I would say that there's a fundamentally a conceptual problem that that Muslims have. We suffered from from for, from a, for a very long time, you know. And of course, I'm not claiming to be the one who's discovered the proper or the right way to understand this. But I'm just sort of trying to highlight uh, what I think is factual, right? Um, because because when we ask the question, "What is Islam?" we're asking uh, an epistemological question at the same time, you know, because because uh, that fundamentally suggests that okay, we know the sources of Islamic knowledge, right? Um, the average Muslim would never say that that Allah and His Messenger don't know what Islam is, right? Of course, that would be, <laughs> that would be draw Islam, right? They, because they, they're the source of Islam, the, the prophet, Allah, and the, and the messenger, Islam, ultimately God, right? But through the prophet as well. Uh, and so you have some people say that Islam is only what Allah and his messengers say. Mm, mm. Then you have those who say that Islam is whatever the Sunnis say, or, 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 or Islam is whatever the Shiites say, right? And then within, let's say we focus on the Sunnis, they'll say okay, the, the Islam is whatever the majority of the scholars say, right, it, without consideration of metha, right? You just, you just look at it, it's a, just, it's a purely numbers game. You know, if you look at this democratic process, you know, if 80% of them say this and, you know, the other 30% would just ignore them. And so 80, 70, 80% determines what true Islam is. Mm -hmm. Then in, on another level, people believe that Islam is whatever the four schools uh, say, right? Yeah. But then within the four schools, they're disagreeing. You know, then they may say, well, what the, is whatever the standard opinion of the four schools is, right? Right. right. So, so, so I think this is the first uh, source of, uh, I guess you say, confusion mm. um, that we have is about, okay, well, determining like exactly, um, you know, who, 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 actually, who actually defines what real Islam is, right? Hmm. Now, coming back to the question of music and musical instruments, if you study the four schools of, Islam, of Sunni Islam, for instance, you learn that the mainstream opinion, the standard opinion is, is that, you know, music, right, and musical instruments are unlawful, right? right? Hmm. It's unlawful to utilize, you know, stringed and other types of instruments, with the exception of, we call it like the deaf, you know, the deaf, for instance, um, and, and the human voice, I know it's not an instrument, but that would be a human voice. You know, you can you can utilize what you do with what Samar or and or Anashid, you know, sort of the prophetic utterances. I'm sorry, or, or Islamic songs, as long as there's you know, uh, not accompanied by any other type of instruments, right? So, this mm. is generally uh, right. we find the viewpoints in the schools, however, however, <laughs> right. There's always and a however, is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think that this is one thing that people, uh, a lot of people overlook or perhaps are just something unaware of is that there are many scholars, not only Imam Ghazali, who had an opinion about musical instruments which was not mainstream. Now, Imam Muhammad Ghazali actually makes a distinction between um, instruments which are associated with drunkards and those which are not. Interesting. Yeah. So as if to say that, OK, if this particular instrument is associated with people who actually drink wine, right, mm. and, and their special uh, clubs or whatever, then you can't utilize it. Right. But if it's not associated with them, you know, or or that if you if you happen to utilize that instrument and it doesn't place you in that uh, make people think that you're one of those people, then it's fine. To, um, to actually utilize it, you know, he, he actually this comes out if you read his uh, yeah Elamidin, you know, his sections on that. Now, mm -hmm. of course, he's not the authoritarian; he doesn't determine like, exactly what he's not the final word, right, on actually the, uh, of musical instruments. But he goes further and say that 
that um, that 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 the individual who's not moved by harmony is subhuman. But you know, you know, for paraphrasing him, right? And he yeah. said that even a camel, if you sing to a camel, a camel actually will be uh, energized, become much more activated, and it will start to move quicker, right, faster, right, on, wow. on the path. Right? So, uh, so this is Ghazali. But then let's talk about other scholars. Uh, there are scholars like Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri, the literalist scholar, who actually says that all the hadith about musical instruments are fabricated. <laughs> oh. you know, now, I don't think he's right about all of those uh, hadiths, but I think perhaps he, it's true about most of them. Right? He said they're fabricated or this extremely weak. Right? And then you also similar scholars have the same view, right? such as Qadir Abu Bakr al-Arabi, the great Maliki scholar from Seville, um, um, Imam Shokani, the great uh, scholar, the Zaydi scholar, uh, and then also Ezz uh, ibn um, Abdul Salam, who was referred to as Sultan al-Ulama, right? the, the sultan of the scholars, right? You know, he's very well known, right? His position was that the hadiths are weak, right? You know, he even goes further and say, and he says that um, that for some people, listening to music is a source of healing, right, for them. It's a source of healing for their hearts and for their souls in the same way that dhikr of Allah is a source of healing for people who are much more spiritually inclined, right? So you say, of course, it's not the best situation, but he says that for some people, you know, this is what it what it what it is, right? You know, so so the basic point being that like so many other things, there's a lot of nuance involved here. Uh, Imam Ghazali's brother, Ahmed Ghazali, was much more extreme, right? You know, he, he has a book, he he's totally he was totally opposed to anything related to jest and play and games and things like that, you know. So for him, totally prohibited music. He didn't like, uh, he didn't permit any type of games or cards with cars or backgammon or other sort of thing, anything with dice, you know, that anything that was going to distract you from Allah's Panatara, uh, that he was totally against it. Mount Ghazali's position is a little bit more nuanced when it comes to the matter of music, right? And 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 this really takes us, takes us back to what examples that were mentioned before by Ghazali, you read in that book uh, about embellishing uh, mm. your voice, right? Mm. Ghazali is a kitab al -Im from the Ahya in this translation here. Um, that's the uh, Fon Vite, right? Is it Fon Vite? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so, so embellish the embellishment of one's voice while reciting. Yes. Right, yes. Becomes, it's looked upon as a bit odd, right? Now, what's interesting is in the Maliki school, you know, so I'm a Maliki myself, I follow the Maliki school, and that's what I'm, I'm much more uh, learned in, and it's in the Maliki school, uh, that it's interesting that Imam Malik's position himself was that it was disliked, right, to actually to sing the adhan, right? He considered it to be makro, disliked, right? Um, he also considered it to be disliked to recite the Quran in congregation or to do group supplication, supplication or group uh, litanies and things like that, group dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So these are all things that can find it in the Maliki school, you know, so this was the default position of Imam Malik himself. Now, the reason he held that view was because he believed that the, the, the custom of the people of Medina during his time, the scholars of Medina's time, they represented the, the, the true Islam or the constituted what the Sunnah was right during the time of the Prophet himself. So whatever they did not do, he considered it to, to, to be Sunnah, right? So he didn't go so far as say it was haram for you to do so, but he said it's better for you not to change the Sunnah, right? If this is not something prevalent here, then we should not introduce it or start to uh, to, to practice it, right? And, and so what happens is that the school, the, even the Maliki school, as time goes on, eventually changes or, or it sort of, it, it, it bends or it caves in when it comes to trying to uphold uh, these uh, more, much more conservative positions. So you go, for instance, somewhere like Morocco, and it's a regular practice for them to read the Quran in congregation after Salat al-Fajr, and after Salat al-Maghrib every day, and some mosques after Salat al-Asr as well, right? You know, and so they did it. They came up with a concept. Of, 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 they, they talk about maslaha, it's self-interest. You know, they, they were they, they, the scholars say that they were concerned with the fact that when people were coming to the mosque, they sort of lost 
the spirit of the mosque and they wanted to maintain the spirit of the mosque. So they introduced this practice into the into the mosque, right? And then mm -hmm. many of the Maliki Sufis also accepted or uh, the idea of, of group suppl supplication and recitation, all those things like that as well, right? So there's been a lot of evolution uh, in Islamic law as well, right? And so- I'm, I'm, I'm still confused I, I mean, maybe the confusion is inevitable, but you, you, you see at the beginning that the four schools are unanimous. The musical instruments, that's what you said, if I remember, um, are unanimous. The musical instruments are just well, not, not unanimous. I mean, unanimous in the sense that they're standard views because within every school, there's yeah. a standard view, right? So if right. you look at the standard view, yes, if you base it upon that, then they are unanimous. But that's if you right. consider within the school, Okay, yeah. fair enough. But my point is, it still stands. So uh, I, as a layman or Mr. and Mrs. Average person, Muslim, wants to find out what they should do about music. And they're aware the standard view, as you've just carefully defined it, is clear, haram, basically. Right. It's an innovation. It's a bidder. Right. Um, but they're also aware, because they've heard you say this, that Al-Ghazali, uh, mm. the great, great, great uh, Islamic scholar, um, had a different view. And then you mentioned a whole bunch of other scholars as well, uh, Maliki scholars, who also kind of more or less go in that direction. So it, it seems to, I mean, maybe this confusion is inevitable, but what is a layman or laywoman to do with all this scholarly confusion? But it, it seems to me the, the, the island of clarity is the, the standard view of the four mudhabs. Mm -hmm. But there are the dissenting voices. So do we just default back to the safe path, which is to follow the mudhabs? Because we're not scholars as laymen. Obviously, you are, but I'm not. Is that what we should do? I mean, how are we to negotiate this stuff? And how are we to reach a decision personally for us as laymen? Well, I think it was important is to remember that Islam was never intended to be an autodidactic enterprise, right? If we can call it an enterprise. In other words, uh, the human element, the human teacher, the human guide has always meant to be a part of the practice of Islam, right? right? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted us to just simply read and just, you know, uh, you know, maintain our privacy away from everyone else, then he would just, he would have, you know, probably just given all the all the companions the revelation, right? Give everyone a copy of a book, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or um, and when the companions they traveled and they spread Islam, uh, they didn't have translations of the Quran with them that they just passed out, right? The people embraced Islam over the centuries because of what they saw the character of the Muslims, right? And of course, saying that is to 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 make the point that if you are a Muslim right, and you are confused about such things. Now, I would say that if you don't have anyone, anyone in your midst to consult, then your, your default should be, okay, follow whatever the, the, uh, the mainstream or the standard viewpoint is, right? However, uh, if you have a relationship with someone, uh, a learned person, an individual, uh, and, hope, and preferably, uh, and we hope that everyone gets the benefit of having someone who understands a bit uh, about uh, human behavior, and, and, and development and they're able to guide you and, and understand that there's certain needs that you have, you know, of course that's very rare, right? But that's what we see is that such people can actually give you guidance on um, ways to overcome your dependency on music or television or internet, those type of things, right? You know? yeah, and yeah. I'm not talking about a necessary Sufi guide or a Sufi shape. I'm not really necessarily talking about that. I'm just saying that like for instance, if someone were to come to me, right, and they were struggling with uh, this ruling that they came across about music, they were told that okay, music is completely haram, um, and and this is this has happened multiple times. There's a, there's a brother, um, his name is Mustafa Davis, who who, who actually um, produced a, a documentary some years ago called Dean Tight, and in that particular documentary, he's a friend of mine. I actually saw him just a couple of days ago. Um, Dean Tite, and this is a documentary he talked about the struggles that certain Muslim musicians were having um, with, 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 with the ruling that they've been told that it was haram for them to do music, to actually be a musical artist, right? and how they were contend contending with those particular uh, challenges. Uh, and but but the problem fundamentally, and I told Mustafa this a long time ago, is that the problem with the documentary is that it sort of presented the options as in black or white terms. Is it, okay, Islam says music is haram. Islam says music is haram, right? And here you have Muslim musicians. 
okay, how are you contend how are you contending with this? How are you dealing with this? Right? You know, and and so, but if those people knew that there are other opinions available, right? You know, that there were legitimate opinions, they're not weak opinions, right? That exist, you know, there's such people, it could be a way for them to actually um, continue what they're doing and perhaps it actually give them a um, a uh, a way to begin to transition into something else potentially, you know, if that's what they desire to do so, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, you meet people where they are, right? Now I think that what can happen is that, um, that for many people who are very, still very uh, vulnerable, right? When they first accept embrace the faith that they can be chased away because mm -hmm certain things become just too difficult. It's like a guy becomes Muslim and he has a girlfriend and then somebody says, oh, you got to break up with your girlfriend or a woman's been married to a husband for, a social, for 30, 40 years. She becomes Muslim, her husband doesn't. And you say, oh, you got you to leave your husband, right? So those are, those are situations which require like individual guidance, right? Yeah. Uh, now for the public, the general public, well, yes, we're going we're gonna to reinforce what the standard opinion is. Right. But some people, when they struggle with these things and, and we when we fear that they are in danger of losing their faith right, or being chased away or driven deeper into some type of sin, then um, we let them know, OK, this there's something else that exists. You should take a footwork from your heart. You know, you have to make a decision about what you're prepared to go to Allah with. Right. So that's fundamentally the, at least the way that I try to operate with mm -hmm. these type of uh, situations. It's very compassionate. I, I'm thinking of, um, of famously Cat, Cat Stevens, as he was known, use of Islam in the UK here, the, yeah. uh, the very famous musician still producing music. But when he came a Muslim famously in the 70s, at 1970, yes. he, was, uh, he, he, he was a superstar in the musical world, you know, uh, by any standards. He was a, a global phenomenon. And he gave up music. He became a Muslim and he stopped performing. And then some time later, some years, I'm not sure when, uh, how many years ago now it was, but he he had a change of heart and he he decided that after all, he could practice as a musician, uh, you know, with a guitar and other things. And uh, so he's resumed his career and uh, as a Muslim um, playing music, of course. And he came under criticism at that time, as, you, as one can imagine. But um, I, I just mentioned him as a well-known example of the kind of uh, people yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, there are others too. There's, there's a there's a local brother. Um, his name is Jordan Richard. He used he actually used to be the uh, national national skateboard champion. This was I believe back in the 1990s or you know, and he became Muslim. And once he became Muslim, there are some people saying things to him about him skateboarding potentially being haram, and so he abandoned that <laughs> as well. Is right? it a fatwa about skateboarding? Bloody. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the detail. I can't remember exactly what happened, you know. But I also, again, I have a relationship with him as well, right? But mm -hmm. you know, it's happened to many people. People, I'm glad that you have these people who become Muslim. They really want to do the right thing, right? You know, they really mm -hmm. want to be sincere. Uh, and so, what happens is that once they discover that certain information has been hidden from them, that they become bitter as well, right? You know, so I think, um, while on one hand we can encourage people, okay, yes, follow. The standard viewpoints on these issues uh, that we should not uh, in, uh, intentionally hide things from them because uh, ultimately we can't control anyone and what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. But we, we can say, okay, well, I disagree with that opinion, right? I think you should do this. But ultimately, people want to uh, make their own decisions about what they, um, you know, feel is is correct. And, and maybe in time, if your own or my own opinion was the correct one, maybe their experiences will teach them why that opinion was the correct opinion to, for one to take. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is a very uh, sort of a developmental approach rather than, well, you've now become Muslim, you've got to drop absolutely everything and completely adopt uh, it. It is more of a process, uh, a journey perhaps uh, that takes time allowing for the, the unique circumstances of the person and their lives and their relationships too. So this is a less kind of catastrophic um, vision of becoming a, a Muslim. Um, well, what would be, I mean, that's, that's a, very, a very beautiful uh, vision as well. What would be, how would that be expressed in the Sunnah, for example, of the Prophet? Are there examples in his time where he um, had that approach? No, there, there are multiple examples of that. I mean, there was uh, the time when the man who had come to him who had um, had intercourse with his wife during Ramadan and he, he, he pled with the Prophet. He said to him, you know, I've destroyed myself. And I, I've, you know, 
I've been intimate with my wife during Ramadan, during the fast. And so the prophet responded to him, oh, then free a slave. And then the man said to him, Ya Rasulullah, I don't have any money to free a slave. So then he said, then, um, then fast for two consecutive months. And then he said, Ya Rasulullah, I don't have the strength to do that. Mm. And then he said, then feed 60 people. And then he said, Ya Rasulullah, I don't have enough to feed anyone, right? So then the prophet went and he received some 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 food from uh, the uh, the treasury and he gave it to the man. And then uh, he said, take this and go feed feed those people. And then and then the man said to the prophet, go feed people who are much more poor. Uh, you feed people who are poorer than me, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, it's like he said, there's no one more poor than I am in my own village, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the prophet, he laughed when this man said, to, said this to him. They said to him, say, go take this and go feed your family. Yes. <laughs> so uh, that is one, I think, uh, popular example that, that, that shows the way that the prophet suddenly interacted with people and, um, and, and his compassion and showing them that while the law is important, right, circumstances can lead to these mitigating, uh, um, can mitigate, you know, uh, the situation to the point that uh, you won't need to actually be as strict upon, your, upon yourself. It all depends on your personal circumstance. Uh, mm. So while the general rule is what it is, that the ply that applies to the average person and that applies in normative situations, but there are always going to be those special situations uh, which an individual will have to, um, will, will, will get some special license to do something differently, you know, mm. I mean, you can um, you know find many examples like this throughout uh, the seerah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi So, I mean, it would be fair. Could I characterize that as saying that Islam, particularly for for, for new Muslims, uh, doesn't require perfection, but it requires one's best that one does what one can in yes. the senses. Um, but that may, may not be the ideal. I mean, I, I mean, but then that's easily interpreted and maybe can also be exploited uh, as a way of, um, you know, diminishing moral responsibility and, and taking it easy. Not in the way that you mentioned earlier on, the prophet saying the, the easier of the two, but taking advantage of it so that you don't have to really make an effort. And of course, that's not the purpose, is it? Right, exactly. Because there's also famous hadith, uh, whatever I forbid you from doing, then avoid it. And whatever I order you to do so, then do as much as you're able to. Wow. So so when he said, if I tell you not to do something, don't do it, he didn't say to your ability. Right. In other words, it says, don't drink wine, don't drink wine. Right. If, uh, don't fornicate, don't fornicate. Mm -hmm. But if I tell you to perform something, do it as much as you can. And now, of course, this is understood uh, as meaning things which are beyond what is compulsory, right? It doesn't mean that, of course, if um, if you're supposed to pray five prayers, if you can just choose a to pray two. Now, you can pray, you have to pray all five, right? Uh, or if you fast Ramadan, you you can just choose. I'm going to fast only half of the month, right? No, you fast the entire month, right? However, right, again, certain people may have some physical ailments or th th which make it impossible for them to fast the entire month, right? All right um, uh, uh, or an individual, again, uh, at the beginning of their conversion may actually be finding difficult, right, to perform all five prayers in their times, right? Now, of course, we should encourage them to pray them in their times and pray all of them, right? But if a person is praying one, how many, like, at least that's a start. Right. At least our attitude should be that you say, well, uh, we can't tell them that it's OK for them to pray only one. Right. Yeah. You still have to pray five, you know. But if you are praying one, alhamdulillah. Right. If you are coming to Juma, you know, alhamdulillah. If you're not coming to the masjid any other time, then mashallah. You know, if you're coming to come to the masjid on Eid and you don't come any other time, alhamdulillah. It's just different people uh, are at different uh, levels of commitment and and we have to meet people as they are, where, where they are, you know, but never justifying sin. We can never justify sin. Um, and that'd be either sin, which is, um, you know, a, a type of omission, right? The sin of omission or the sin of, of commission uh, as well, right? So, uh, but we, we should understand that the human being uh, it develops, right? And mm. actually, I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, about, uh, Paul, I know you have another question, but uh, eventually I wanted to sort of bring this 
uh, around to the to the topic of like just progress in general, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. No, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, because we talked a little bit about uh, we talked about technological scientific progress. Yeah, yeah. And and it seems that Islam's legal position is, or the default legal position is that okay, technology is good, right? You know, until proven to be bad. Uh, but when it comes to moral progress, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah, especially when we consider oh. or, or mm-hmm. sort of developmental, human developmental progress, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Darwinian type of progress, right? We live in this time where there are too many people in positions of power and influence who seem to believe that uh, the human being is is meant to be something to become something other than what it is, right? So we see all of this, um, this phenomenon of transgenderism, mm. right? And in the minds of many people, they, hey, well, human beings evolve, right? Or homosexuality, human beings evolve, right? Uh, but then there's also transhumanism as well, right? Mm. You know, so people believe that, well, that we're, our evolution has not been completed or, and we're going to accelerate our evolution by um, ensuring that the human being uh, combines with with robotics and and technology and things like that in order to accelerate our movement into the future, right? You know, so so with an understanding of bi'ah, I'm sorry, an understanding of bid'ah and fitrah, right? Human nature uh, uh, and and, and uh, that a human being or nothing is supposed to change, or no one has the right to change human nature, right? That in itself is a source of security and protection. For humanity and for the world, right? In, in my opinion, you know, and so in Islam, I think more than any other religion, places strong emphasis on uh, the the uh, the the impermissibility of changing God's law, changing His religion and ideas, um, and 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 I and I would say that bid'ah fundamentally is an anti-progress uh, doctrine. Right, you know, that is sort of the default is that progress is bad. If we're talking about progress in morality, in the realm of morality, in the realm of culture, uh, etc. Right, yeah. but not necessarily in the realm of technology, but it could, right, also apply to that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I was kind of throughout there to see what how. No, but, but actually, uh, you anticipated my. But that was my very question. Uh, I wanted you to make some comments, which you have about the contemporary threats from bidder this is the reprehensible innovations i mean not right. innovations necessarily in technology although they can be dodgy as you say but not in not intrinsically mm-hmm. uh you know what are the obvious reprehensible uh, innovations bidder and you mentioned that you mentioned transgenderism and sexuality you mentioned this transhumanism uh phenomenon uh so th- th- these are uh, these are very much bearing down on us as a society through the media and through uh politics, culture, pressure groups, mm-hmm. um, and, and some Muslims uh, perhaps are uh, falling for these uh, bidder uh, in, yeah. in, in our time. So would those be the main ones, you think, that are a threat to the to the ummah these days? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that those are the main ones in the moral realm more than anything yeah. else. I mean, because human being, of course, is a moral creature. And mm-hmm. so you corrupt human morality, then you're going to corrupt humanity, and then by corrupting humanity, you're going to corrupt, uh, you know, the entire planet, right? Because mm-hmm. human being has been given this mastery and supremacy over the planet and over other creatures, right? So naturally, that's uh, it, that it moves us in that particular direction, and uh, and um, the attempts to rewire our brains to try to redefine the human being, you know, the imposition of this, um, you know special pronouns and you know, have to refer to me as this and I said no I don't have to refer to you as that um, uh, but yeah I definitely think that this itself is the greatest threat you know that we have you know and um, the Quran so I just said there's a dimension of this which is not often not mentioned at, at least perhaps publicly is that according to the Quran shaitan is the enemy of mankind that's right uh, and he seeks our harm mm-hmm. yeah. and you know he's active he, he's not uh, 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 most of the time. So uh, perhaps it would be uh, prudent to say also, this is not always what it appears to be what's going on. Yes, there are these actors who do these things and politicians and so on. Mm-hmm. But behind the scenes, in the unseen, um, maybe there are, there's an occult hidden war right. on humanity. Right. 
uh, that's actually also a major factor in what's happening. Would you say that was fair? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's what the Hadith of the Prophet tells us, you know, that that that, that Shaytan, he puts his places, his, his throne over the waters and he dispatches his minions from there, you mm. know, and those who are closest to him are those who have the greatest capacity to uh, seduce people, right? Mm. And so someone would, one of them would come to him and say, today I've done this. And he says, no, you've done nothing. And then eventually someone will say, I did not leave this man and his wife until I separated the two of them, right? And that's the one that Satan praises, right? Is the individual, uh, who the, the jinn, who was able to um, cause a rupture of relations between a man and his wife or just break up a family, right? So, um, so definitely there is um, a cabal or sort of there's naturally that uh, something in, in the uh, behind the scenes, you know, those, mm -hmm. we have these, uh, Un, uh, um, these, these enemies which we can't see and of course the greatest of them is Satan um, and, and, and we have to believe that that's something we have to believe in and he actually promises in the Quran that he's going to change God's creation you know, oh, really? he's going to oh. lead the human being he's going to embellish things up and make the human being create God to, to change God's creation right? well that's, that's incredibly relevant isn't it that's right. exactly what is happening so th this is even more uh, poignant uh, yeah. that we must understand that these are these uh, evil forces behind the scenes that are uh, pushing us in these terrible directions. The examples uh, you've given are according so much, uh, well, without going to the whole issue, an, an awful lot of destruction uh, to innocent people often who think they can, well, let's not go into it, but you know, it's, yeah. it's very, very, very tragic. So it's not just uh, a minority of activists from wherever behaving badly. There is uh, an unseen dimension to this. Right. Um, Right. which is orchestrated behind the scenes to uh, destroy human beings. Um, right. That's right. extraordinary. Yeah, and, and I would say, like, for, for the sake of for Muslims who, who are actually supporting and contributing to uh, the corruption right, of, the, of, the, uh, of humanity, uh, along with, of course, the non-Muslim counterparts, uh, that um, I believe that at the root of it, one of the things that actually leads them to, to take part in this, this effort has a lot to do with this uh, low self-esteem. And, and Ibn Taymiyyah has a, a, a very important book in this particular regard called which uh, translates as the demands uh, of the straight paths um, for the purpose of opposing the companions of the hellfire. And, and fundamentally, you know, he, he highlights Bid'ah too. He talks about Bid'ah, the the heresies and and um, and one of the fundamental problems with Muslims being that they admire the the rejectors of faith too much, right? You know that their admiration for them and actually has, it's, they've internalized that and actually mm -hmm. they've undermined their own uh, interests and, and the process of it, right? Now, of course, not everything in the book I agree with, but but you know it's an extremely important book. Um, uh, in that particular regard, he sort of um, places um, the um, seventh century Arabia uh, as the sort of standard for true Islam. And then so anything that sort of departs from uh, seventh century Arabia, you know, becomes it looked upon as something contrary to the Sunnah. You know, and that's another thing that people don't understand too is that bid'ah itself is the opposite of the, of the Sunnah. If you're practicing bid'ah, then it's understood that you're abandoning the Sunnah of the Prophet right? You know, especially in those situations where we know the Prophet did something under certain circumstances, and then we abandon those those practices, and then we replace them with something different, right? So we put to death. The sunnah. We put the sunnah to death and we bring to life uh, a heresy. Right? Mm -hmm. So this was a common understanding among all of the scholars, regardless of the definition they gave to bid'ah, um, be it Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, Shatibi, uh, Izzah ibn Abdul Salam, or Ghazali, or anyone else, right? And or, Sha or Ibn Shafi'i. Imam Shafi'i said that there's two types of bid'ah, praiseworthy and blameworthy. Um, but as we know, not all the scholars believe that there's a such thing as a praiseworthy bid'ah because mm -hmm. they just take the words of the prophet um, literally as, as, they, as they appear to mean that anything that is bid'ah is misguidance. Mm, okay. Well, perhaps we can come to a conclusion now. Thank you for, for all that. Is there anything in, in conclusion uh, about bid'ah 
uh, you might want to uh, uh, share with us uh, and the viewers? Uh, no, just that, of course, it's a, it's a very difficult topic to mm. gain closure on, right? There's this, we can't, we're never going to be able to um, offer a final word on what constitutes bid'ah, you know, but we, we do live in a time where you do have these different factions of Muslims, you some of them, in particular, if you talk about the Salafi, Sufi sort of split, mm. uh, that uh, sometimes I've noticed it's this, um, a lot of like, uh, you know, just um, dogmatism, right, involved with regard to this matter. You know, says, so, oh, if the Salafis say this is bid'ah, then you know, we, then it, then it's probably not. And and of course, almost anything that Sufis do is bid'ah for the Salafis. And uh, but um, it's it's an extremely important topic. That I think that Muslims should definitely delve deeper into it. Um, I would recommend, in particular, for those who have access to Arabic, who can understand Arabic works. You can read um, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's work, Ibtidat Sirat Mustaqim. Imam Abu Shaq al-Shatibi has a book, Al-Atisam, uh, which is dedicated two volumes to the topic of bid'ah itself. Uh, he's, he's often been misunderstood by, in particular, his Sufi critics that I've read. I've said some of the Sufi critics of Imam al-Shatibi who make it seem that he's saying something other than what he says. Uh, but Imam al-Shatibi's position is that there is no such thing as a good bid'ah uh, however, anything that has a, a a foundation or has a basis in the Sharia cannot be called a, a bid'ah, right? So, which means that if it originates from Quran or from Sunnah or from Ishma or from Qiyas or any of the other sources uh, accepted by all or not accepted by all of the ulama, Imam Shatimi's position is that anything that has a source has a has a basis, a legal basis. Is not referred to as bid'ah, even if it didn't exist during the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then you have others who say that a bid'ah is anything that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did not do, did not say, nor did he approve of. And then you have those who would include omissions as well. So if the Prophet did not do something, and then you're doing it, that they would say that that in itself is actually a bid'ah, and then others say, no, an omission is not evidence of the impermissibility of something. At any rate, um, there's much more we can go on for, for actually a long time if we actually would break out one of those books. But mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping that uh, I've um, been able to offer some degree of clarity on this. Um, but um, I always enjoy speaking to you and 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 Allah mm -hmm. Taala grant you success on your 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 page and your your your, your efforts. You know, and I really enjoy all your posts, especially the uh, you know design posts. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, yeah, I tend to churn those out a bit. Uh, there's so many examples that the whole of the universe is a possibility to. So, uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're great fun actually to produce as well, and they're great imam boosters for me and everyone. Hopefully, inshallah. Uh, no, thank you so much indeed, uh, Professor Abdullah Ali, for your time and your fascinating discourse on Buddha, the complexities of it, and and there's some real gems in what you said. I, I particularly uh, liked your the developmental. Um, kind of approach to particularly new Muslims uh, embracing uh, the deen, um, much more humane, if that, that's the right word, um, uh, way of approaching it rather than the kind of the big bang approach where suddenly you've got to be instantly a fully fledged, <laughs> fully yeah, Muslim, uh, which is perhaps not humanly possible. Um, like for me, anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, I really appreciate what you said. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor. Until next time. Inshallah. Thank you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.